We'll begin reading in verse 37, and we'll read through verse 47, these 11 verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, coming in at the end of Peter's main sermon and the response that we have to it. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All right, well, this morning we finish up the introduction to the church in Acts chapter 2. We have seen Peter's message um, on the heels of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, was manifested by a mighty rushing wind and by uh, cloven tongues. Uh, There wasn't, uh, I'm sorry, there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind and the appearance of something that looked like cloven tongues. Uh, There wasn't any fire, there wasn't any wind, it was the sound of, as of. um, And we think that, well, that was all the power. That was the um, force that brought 5,000 to Christ by the end of the chapter. But the fact that we saw several weeks ago was that all that did was produce a lot of questions. What does this all mean? Was the response of people to that activity. They didn't understand it. And we find then that it was Peter standing up in their midst and answering that question, what does it all mean, with a gospel message. And that gospel message took went from explaining what they had just seen and heard to moving to understanding that they needed to ask another question. And the other question they needed to ask was, what shall I do? And this is the presentation of the testimony of every Christian, is that by living our lives, we want to produce in people around us the question, what does it mean? Why do you live like that? Why do you behave that way? Why do you talk that way? So that we can bring them to ask the question they really need to ask is, what should I do about Jesus? Well, we saw last week their response to... Um, Peter's instructions that they repent and be baptized uh, and the necessity of turning from their sin, uh, the necessity of having that cut heart, uh, recognizing that Holy Spirit's work, being confronted with their sin and the need for a Savior. And out of 
their response, and again, uh, we can't underestimate that working of the Holy Spirit, certainly, nor of the preaching of God's Word, um, but they responded to it. Some. It says those who gladly received. And it doesn't say that all gladly received, but those who did were baptized. In verse 41, this is where we ended last week, seeing the response to Peter's message, the response to his answer to the question, what shall we do, is repent. They do so participating in the waters of baptism as a public proclamation of what's going on inside of them, spiritually. And we find that there were 3,000 souls added to them that day. That out of this enormous congregation that would have been there on the day of Pentecost in the temple, 3,000, and the indication is men, largely, would have responded. That's who Peter is speaking predominantly to, men of Israel. Listen to me. We find their response. And now begins the birth, if you will, now that we have this body coming in of the church, coming into full form. And we want to look at verses 42 and following of what now does a church do? What do we do with 3,000 souls being added to our number in one day? And that might seem like an incredible amount to you, given our history and in our culture. Um, But I want to share with you that that is not an unheard of number, even in our generation, just not in this place. That those kinds of numbers are coming to Christ, have been coming to Christ in places like India and in China, uh, in lands uh, in Korea, uh, historically during my lifespan. And as we see the gospel's emphasis and power seem to go from uh, the east to the west uh, and circumnavigate the globe, as we're going to see later on in the book of Acts under Paul's ministry, where God says, I don't want you to go east, I want you to go west. Go west to Thessalonica, to Macedonia. So we want to look at what do we do as a church to establish the gospel in people's life. We, we've talked so far about how to introduce the gospel into people's lives, of that process of them coming to Christ. Well, then what? And this is the question that really needs to be addressed very fervently because there's been too much evangelism going on uh, without that follow-up instruction and training and grounding in a local church. And this we want to explore this morning. Before we do so, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to come to your word. And Lord, we beg for your help. Um, It's certainly beyond us to rightly divide it by man's wisdom, by our insight. And so we trust in your spirit this morning to illuminate us to your word, that we might see its truth. And not only to illuminate the word in terms of its meaning and instruction, but also to work in our hearts. That we might, as these that are recorded for us responded, that we might also respond. By faith, trusting in you. By humbling ourselves to that truth and recognizing the necessity of our submission to it. Lord, we pray we might have such a spirit this morning in our midst. And then, Lord, we do... Pray you might guard this time to not only 
lead us into your truth, but to guard us from error. That we might have the full counsel of God, that we might discern it as such, and recognize its authority in our life. As truly the words from your lips, from your heart. Lord, we thank you for it. And again, we commit this time to you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to Acts chapter 2, and we come to the activity of the church. We have the first activity once they had received his word, and we talked about that somewhat last week, and that is they were baptized. And we referenced that in terms of its historical purpose and meaning of his historical activity, what actually they did, and that they were familiar with this not only from John the Baptist's activity, but they were familiar with it from um, all those who would have come uh, out of the Gentile world into the Jewish world. They would have fully understood because they had been baptized to become, uh, to complete their conversion to Judaism, and the Judaism requirement was that they would be baptized in living water, that is immersed in water that had an inlet, an outlet, not a stagnant pool. And so they had a familiarity with this. John the Baptist, of course, reinforces that. You need to prepare yourself for the Messiah. We are now three, three and a half years later. And uh, the recognition that we are now moving into this, this age of grace and of the church, that we are associating ourselves now with this body of people, of believers in Jesus Christ, followers of him as the resurrected one, we participate now in the waters of baptism. For, for some of these people, this may have been their third baptism in their life. If they were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism right before John the Baptist comes on the scene and now are still in Jerusalem during this event, this could have been their third baptism in a matter of four or five years as they would have come to know first Judaism, then heard John the Baptist says, I want to be one of those looking for the Messiah. And now the baptism of Christ. And so we find uh, this usage is not unfamiliar to them. Um, it has been muddied over the church history a little bit. Um, but for these people, there wasn't really a need for instruction. There wasn't a need for clarification. Everyone understood what they were doing. And so they, once they received it, they went right down and were baptized that day. Verse 42 now leads us into what's going to happen for the balance of church life. What is church life going to look like in the first century? And again, we want to rem- I want to remind you what we talked about early on in the book of Acts. That Acts' purpose is to describe for you what the church did, not necessarily to prescribe for you what the church should do. And you might say, Pastor, are you trying to say they did it wrong? Sometimes they did some things that weren't quite right. And that's going to be described for us. One of the things that we're going to pull out, we're going to see some problems with later on, is where they're meeting. Where they're meeting early on is pretty exclusive. Um, not the house-to-house meeting that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but the fact that they're corporate, they're large meetings, were always held in a place that only Jews could get to. That's pretty exclusive. That doesn't really conform itself to the command of God in Acts 1.8. Jesus Christ said you're supposed to go into the whole world to preach the gospel. And God's going to correct that in the church. But what Luke gives us is a description of what the church was doing and how it worked. And in fact, the church is going to come up to some problems along the way. Um, Acts chapter 6, we're going to have some problems. Acts chapter 4, we're going to have some problems. 
um, with some of what's going on. And so we have a description here, and we want to be real careful because we have seen some doctrines being established assuming that the book of Acts is prescriptive. That is, it's to tell us what to do as a church. But we have enormous amounts of Scripture that are prescriptive. And that is in the uh, epistles, uh, where we are told this is how you should do this, this is how you should do communion, this is how you should um, meet and serve. And this is, and so we have many uh, passages of Scripture that are prescriptive for the church. Um, this is a description of what the church was involved in. This is a historical record. And so we're going to carry it that way. And so we're not going to come here and say, well, because they did this first and that second, therefore we should always do this first and that second. Um, And this has been used in my training um, as prescriptive. It's been used, I've heard it in several um, ordination councils that I've been in, using this passage that we're going to study today as a prescriptive for the church, that it has to be done like this. Um, They don't have any other verses for that. They just have this example. And again, this is a descriptive example, not necessarily prescriptive at this point. We do have a commandment, and that is uh, summarized in Matthew 28. 1920, we are go make disciples. Once they have made, become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we teach them. And that is the command. Teach them what Christ has commanded us. So we walk them into that relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the church's efforts to do just that. To fulfill the commands of God that are prescriptive. Um, and there is some breadth here. And as we pick it up, we find verse 42. And they, that is all of them, both the uh, uh, disciples, the 120 that were uh, initially meeting, uh, the 3,000 that are being added, are going to continue steadfastly. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that word in the Apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so there was a recognition that when you have 3,000 people coming into your church all at once, that there needs to be a concerted effort to make sure that they are well grounded. And certainly it doesn't go very far from the disciples' mind, the uh, parable of Christ about the sower and the seeds and the soils, right? That their seed is sown and, and some of it is off here in the wayside and the birds eat it and it's gone. Some is in rocky soil, and it springs up, but there's no root, and it dies off. Well, how do you prevent that from happening? Well, you got to fix the soil. There's nothing wrong with the seed. It's the soil. So we get the rocks out, and we, and we deepen the soil. Uh, some of it falls in good soil, but it gets choked out by weeds, and it's unproductive. The disciples recognize the necessity within the church to make sure that that is cared for. That that isn't allowed, that we are are consistent, and the words here, steadfast, that we are, are given ourselves fully to this activity of making sure that the life of the believer and the life of the church is weeded from the things of this world. That just choke out our faith. Choke out the desire to live for God and choke out the opportunity to live for God because it leads us into sin. And so to fulfill 
the expectation of Christ in these that come in 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 such a large group, they're going to engage themselves wholeheartedly, not just for a week or a month or just for, you know, baptismal classes or church membership classes, but they're going to engage themselves completely in this endeavor ongoing. And what is that endeavor? To be... Uh, brought under the teaching of the, that's the word doctrine, the teaching of the disciples. That those who had walked with Jesus Christ and had been immersed for three years um, under the daily teaching and example of Christ. Uh, and when I talk about immersed, I mean they walked with him, slept, ate, lived together. Three years of being immersed in the teachings and work and person of Jesus Christ, and they come now and recognize that they have responsibility before God to communicate all of that to the saints, to these 3,000, that they were to be engaged in that, that it was to be an ongoing work, and that everyone who comes in was going to get that kind of instruction. They continued steadfastly in it. That there wasn't a time when they just said, oh, I've got all the answers and I can just stop. For it is certain that that is the condition in which weeds start to grow in your life. When error starts to be introduced, when pride lays hold of us, and we get into trouble. So they continued, steadfastly, making it a priority of their daily activity, is to be trained, to be taught all that Christ taught. Be trained in God's word. Now, this body of 3,000 is different than if 3,000 people of Albuquerque walked into here today. Well, they'd be really hard-pressed to get in here um, space-wise. This is a different kind of 3,000. I want to remind you, these people who are continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, lest you think that they are ignoramuses, these are all Israelites, these are all Jewish people who are actively involved in the temple. How do I know that? Because that's where they're meeting. That's where all this is going down. And we're going to see over and over again throughout the early chapters here, the early life of the church, that the public meeting place for them was in the temple. And the Solomon's porch, his colonnade. And uh, that that was a large meeting area. They could have several thousand there on the temple mount. But it also tells us what kind of people were allowed in. The only people that were going to be there were practicing active members of the Jewish community. Now, Solomon's colonnade, uh, there were several layers of the Temple Mount. There was uh, the inner area where only the priests were, there was the courtyard of men, courtyard of women, courtyard of proselytes. And Solomon's porch would have been way out in the farthest one, so all of those men, women, and, and Gentiles who had converted to Judaism um, could all participate. So it was the, the broadest opportunity for the Jewish community. But only the Jewish community was there. So when we talk about these 3,000, these were 3,000 temple Jews. These were men who knew God's word, knew the Old Testament, were seeking to be obedient to it, who um, were in the temple area. They had a knowledge of God's word, probably superior to most of your knowledge of God's word. 
How well you know the law and the prophets. The Pentateuch. But they would have, and for many of these, would have almost committed to memory. These were not people who were ignorant of God's word, who hadn't seen the Bible, hadn't read through it. These men, and, and by the way, they were trained in the original languages. These people spoke Hebrew. The Bible was written in their language, their people. And yet now they had received Christ as Savior, they recognized they have a great need. That while they have all of this foundation in their life, that they have not ever heard it taught as it intersects, and more than just intersects, merges with the work, person and work of Jesus Christ. So lest you think that these were just people who had never heard of Jesus before and needed to be just trained in the stories, they knew First and Second Samuel and the history of Israel, and, and they knew Moses and the Exodus, and they were very well familiar with all of that. And yet they still recognized the great need they had to steadfastly be involved in the apostles' teaching. They needed to be taught. I want to jump ahead in Acts a little bit to just help us recognize what kind of need we have in terms of the teaching ministry of the church. A young guy training to be part of the leadership of Israel his name is Saul, uh, confronts Christ on the road to Damascus. You know the story. This is a man who was trained as a Pharisee. He had been taught under the feet of one of the most respected of the leadership of Israel, Gamaliel. Um, he was ready to assume some roles of leadership in the nation religiously, uh, which means that he would have fully understood the law, the Pentateuch, all of that, the prophets, he was trained in that. He receives Christ as Savior. He immediately wants to declare that. Um, gets himself in a little hot water in Damascus and then again in Jerusalem. Um, and he pretty much just disappears. He's going to disappear for about 10 to 12 years. 10 to 12 years he disappears. We don't find a lot of record of what was going on. He went home. He went to Tarsus. And my question to you is, what is he doing in Tarsus for 10 to 12 years? I want to tell you what this very learned Pharisee was doing. He was taking God's word and relearning it through the lens of Christ. Twelve years. This guy is going back to relearn Christ. So that when Barnabas shows up in the Tarsus to seek Saul, Saul is ready to get into ministry because God has put him kind of on this back burner so that he could formulate his doctrine and, and, and understand the, the truths of Christ that are replete throughout the Old Testament, it was necessary that he get that re-indoctrination, <laughs> that he get all the teaching that he was taught and relearn it through Christ. My question to you is, if a man like that, God had to set aside for 12 years to get his doctrine nailed down. A man who was trained from a very young age in Scripture saw the need for that. 
my question to, and challenge to you is, how can we think that by one or two hours a week, we're going to get enough to be well-trained, well-tilled soil for the seed of God's Word to really bring fruit in our life? It can't be done. In the Christian community, we applaud ourselves as we read through the Bible once or once a year. The church recognized that when we bring in these people, even though they know the scriptures, these are Jewish men, even though they know the scriptures, there is a necessity that we relearn them now with this powerful presentation of the Messiah and that the leadership of Israel, the religious leadership, rejected crucified him, opposed him in all through his earthly ministry. We need to relearn that through Christ. And so steadfastly, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. But teaching alone wasn't all they did. It was a big part of it, and we're going to see. But they also had fellowship. That is, they had a relationship with one another. And again, we find in our day and age that this is being largely abandoned. No longer are we pursuing intimate relationships with other believers. It's fascinating that things we call social media are some of the most anti-social things there are. You don't believe me? Go to a restaurant, go to a ball game, and watch. And see how interactive people are with one another. I, I go and I see this quote-unquote team sitting together um, at a track meet. And they call themselves a team, which is a relationship and a social unit. Um, and they're all doing this. I, they might be talking to each other across, uh, but they're not engaging each other. No eye contact. No society, no socializing. And in the Christian community, we have laid hold of that, and, and we have Christians thinking that the best place for me to be well trained in God's word is on the internet, in my in my uh, in my comforts of my own home, and that I can get everything I need from Christ uh, and from His Word, and I don't really need to go out to do any better. And brethren, you've missed a huge part of the Christian walk. To the point that when we get into passages like Hebrews, it says, uh, don't let any of you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. So, by the way, it's nothing new. People thought they could do it on their own back then even. But we see it even more so in these days. We are sure we can get everything we need informationally from uh, the media. has been a disaster effect on the church. Because one of the things that we are losing is fellowship. I would contend also the megachurch movement is similarly destroying that. And they, they, they work. I, I, the megachurches work hard to produce fellowship groups. And my contention is if you have to work that hard to create fellowship groups, you need to just break up and have that many churches. One of the things people don't like in our society today about small churches is accountability. Part of fellowship is now you have an intimate relationship with someone, you need to answer them. They can go to your life and say, well, that's not right. 
Because they know your life. They know you intimately. They know your birthday. They know what your, what your favorite entertainment is. They know where you work. They know where you live. And in the mega church, you can walk in, get your sermon, and walk out and have none of it. Very attractive to our society, isn't it? But it's not fellowship. Fellowship is about intimacy. It's about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's about mutual accountability. It's about calling someone a liar when they've lied. And that's going to happen in Acts chapter 4. You lied. This isn't what you sold the land for. Plunk, they've dropped dead right in front of you. Well, let's not have that much accountability, please. You know. You see, doctrine is of absolute necessity, but it's within a context, and that context within the church was a, a matter of fellowship, and they recognized the need to have an intimate relationship one with another for the mutual benefit that you minister to me, I minister to you, that we hold each other accountable, and by this means we grow in the Lord. We nourish each other. We build each other up. We strengthen the body of Christ. And again, throughout the epistles, we have what is described here, prescribed for us in the epistles. We need to be gathering together. Paul tells the Corinthians, when you get together on the first day of the week, you know, that's when you collect your offering, that's when you do this stuff, make sure you take care of some of these matters. 3,000 people. A lot of fellowship. How did they handle that kind of fellowship? Uh, we are find later on that they met house to house. Verse 46 says they, were, they met in the temple. The temple was the big meeting place. But then it says that they broke bread from house to house. So while they had the large meeting place, they also had the intimate places. And a house would, some of these houses were capable of having 100 to 200 people. Um, just to give you an idea, in the upper room, uh, Christ meets with 120. So there's 120 up there. Uh, some of those homes had sufficient area for that kind of meeting. Um, but you have a level of intimacy that you're not going to get with the thousands up there at Solomon's Colonnade. And they recognize that's our fellowship. Within that context, we celebrate the Lord's table, the breaking of bread, it says here in verse 42. And again, uh, referring to our communion table, that uh, how do we do this? Well, we do it within the context of our doctrine, our fellowship of baptized believers. Uh, we are in, involved in, in participating in the communion table one with another. Again, to remind each other of what our salvation, though it came to us, Freely, it was very costly to the one who provided it. We need to be reminded of that together. And they did that house to house. They ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart. They were just rejoicing that they could be in the family of God. It also says that they were with one accord. In verse 46. I want to describe, I think the verses before really uh, describe one accordness. I think it's tied to doctrine. I think it's also tied to fellowship. And it's also tied to participating in the Lord's table as much as it's tied to prayer. All of those facets that the church was involved in um, 
are critical. But as they continued in doctrine, verse 47 says, they continued daily with one accord, a one-mindedness. And where does this come from? This comes from a, the, the working together of all of these commands of God. We are commanded to partake in the Lord's table. We are commanded to fellowship one with another. We are commanded to be trained, to be taught everything. Christ has told us, instructed us in of God's word. And that we have been commanded to be in prayer. The prayer is not tangential to the church, but it is critical to the church. Pastors have long been frustrated with the silence of the church in the arena of prayer. To such a degree, we try to even hold services that are designed only for prayer. Uh, Throughout the course of my ministry, I've tried to invest a lot of prayer in the midst of our morning worship service. I remember some of you that, when you were kids, used to time them, time my morning prayers, um, see how long they would go. And then they'd come up and let me know, Pastor, you prayed for six minutes this morning. Trying to communicate something that this is absolutely necessary in our church life. And that our prayer time on Thursday night is not just a small part of this ministry. Um, It's the most critical night of the week in this ministry. Oh, it's the least attended, no doubt. Because we haven't been trained to value this. The absolute necessity of prayer in not only our private life, but certainly Scripture calls us to that in a private setting, that we close the closet door and we get before God in prayer, but there's also a setting throughout Scripture for the believers to gather in prayer. And it's no mistaking as we go through the book of Acts that time and again, whenever a substantial work of God is about to break forward, um, you find a group of people in prayer. And by the way, they're not very big. Even the early church struggled in this area. The groups gathered for prayer. Go to Acts chapter 13. See who's gathered in prayer. Five men. Five men. Not a very big prayer service, huh? Five men gather in prayer. And God says, I want two of you guys to go share the gospel with the Gentiles. Two of the five were Paul and Barnabas. I want to share with you, God didn't select outside of those five. He selected among them. Those five men demonstrate their commitment to God by being gathered together in prayer together. Praying for the lost. And he didn't lead those five to go pick somebody else. God picked two of those five. Prayer's greatest work isn't to affect others. Prayer's greatest work is to affect God in your life. This is where prayer needs to happen in my life. So that then I, as an agent of God, can impact others. 
we somehow have made prayer a wish list that we come to God and we exclude ourselves from it kind of, well, I'm just the asker on behalf of this person. Can you do this for them? You know, that I'm kind of, that's my role. I'm just the asker. So I see this person has a need. I go to God who has the supply. And I say, God, can you kind of supply that need? And I want to stay over here. So you supply the need. I'm just kind of, I'm just the messenger. No, we, what we are told to do is to put ourselves in this line. Here's the need. Here's the supply. And right here I am, Lord, the conduit. And this is what prayer, rightful prayer, puts you. Five men meet. All five seem to be willing to go. God says, I'll take two. Paul, Barnabas, here we go. If you're wondering, is God doing anything in your life? He picks among the five. Men committed to making prayer a priority in their life. They were trained, they were fellowshipping, they were participating in the Church of Antioch. Um, but that was a pretty small person. By the way, kind of an interesting happenstance, if you want to feel like that. Um, what many consider to be the beginning of the modern missions movement is called the Haystack Prayer Meeting. You ever heard of it? How many of you heard of the Haystack Prayer Meeting? A few of you. The Haystack Prayer Meeting was five guys. They met at a haystack regularly to pray about the need for the gospel to go forth. And out of them, the four sent the one. And we have the beginning, William Carey, the beginning of modern missions. They send him to India a hundred and some years ago. Five men met for prayer. Doctrine is critical. you got to know your stuff. You just got to. And, and to think that, well, I've read through the Bible once and I know a few verses that you're done learning is foolhardy. I'm still digging. I'm still cultivating. And I have a lot to learn. And not many years left to learn it, if any. How dare we think that we've arrived and we can now coast in our knowledge of Christ and the depth and breadth and width that God's Word provides. How dare we think that we can do it by ourselves in our own little cubbyhole, isolated from other believers with no accountability and no encouragement. To think that we can do it with an attitude of prayer that puts us outside of the working of God to supply for others' needs. Real prayer puts you in the supply chain. It puts you right into there. Maybe you're not the one of the five or the two of the five that God appoints to the spearhead, the movement. Maybe you're one of the three left that said, we're going to support you 110%. You're one of the four who said, we will pour every ounce of energy we can into supplying your physical needs while you are there and in praying for you every day. Oh, that we would 
begin to lay hold of that kind of life for the church. That we prioritize these in our life ahead of any form of worldly entertainment, of any act 